Uh, Exodus chapter 14 is where uh, I would ask you to open your Bible to this evening. Uh, Exodus chapter 14, the first 14 verses are going to form the text in our time together. Exodus chapter 14, and we'll read from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before Pihar-Haroth, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them. And I will be honoured upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. And he took six hundred chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Pihar-Haroth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast, they, hast thou uh, dwelt, dealt sorry, thus with us, to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians, than we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, we come uh, humbly before you. Father, we know that uh, we need to hear uh, from you tonight. Father, we want to hear from you tonight. That is the desire of our hearts. Father, we ask that you would uh, remove all distractions and that you would speak to us uh, clearly tonight, that you would speak to us powerfully. Father, you know the needs of our heart better than we do ourselves. And Father, we pray that through the the preaching of the word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, that you would do a, a good work in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the people are finally free. The Lord had delivered them from the Egyptian oppressors. They had been saved. And what a wonderful feeling it must have been to finally be a free people after centuries in slavery. No more whips, no more bricks, no more unreasonable quotas to fill. Life was finally starting to look again, look good again for the Israelites, but quickly this all changed. 
despite being miraculously saved, brought out of Egypt, this did not mean that their life was now going to be smooth sailing. This was not the end of their problems just because they were God's people. Of trials, difficulties and challenges still present themselves despite experiencing salvation. Just because they were God's people, this did not ensure them an easy life, a problem-free existence. In fact, they had many trials and troubles that they were going to endure despite being the covenant people. And it is to the first of their problems that we will devote our time to this evening. And I wish to do this under three headings. They being the reality of difficulty, the reaction to difficulty, and the regulation of difficulty. So firstly, let's consider the reality of difficulty. In the text before us, we have numerous locations identified But it's difficult to determine the exact location of these identified places. They are not well-known ancient cities, and hence these sites cannot be determined with a great deal of accuracy. The exact GPS coordinates of Pihar, Haroth, Migdal and Baal Zephon is unknown, and they are debated amongst the scholars. Now what is clear is that the writer of the book of Exodus, who I would argue is Moses, was certainly familiar with these particular locations. The writer knew the geographical layout of the land. And this lends much weight to the Mosaic authorship. For, do you remember, he spent 40 years in the wilderness tending for Jethro's sheep. He knew this land like the back of his hand. And this casts much doubt over the supposed much later writing date that liberal scholars propose for the Pentateuch. Now, although these locations are difficult to pinpoint, this is really of little importance. For the point that is stressed is that God ordered Moses to take the people in in a different direction. And this divinely ordained decision led the people, to a location that made absolutely no sense. It placed them in a military-speaking, compromised position. Strategically, this was nonsensical. Marching the Israelites towards the sea left them with no escape route. The only way was the way in, and if this was blocked, they were trapped. They were sitting ducks, easy prey for an opposing army, for they would become surrounded. And don't miss the test for Moses in leading his people. This would have made no sense to him at all. He knew this land very well. And the Lord was telling him to take the people in this particular direction. It would have seemed foolish to human logic. And yet Moses trusts his God. He has faith that God's way was the best way, despite it looking like a foolish way. The foolishness of the direction taken to the human perspective is seen in the response of the Pharaoh. He is informed of the exact location of the runaway slaves. Egypt had a powerful and well-organized military, and one of their responsibilities was to patrol the nation's borders 
and then they would report any movement promptly back to Pharaoh. And hence they probably couldn't believe their eyes when they saw the direction that Israel was taking. This made no sense. And they no doubt quickly reported this back to Pharaoh. In verse 2, we are told that Pharaoh would think that the Israelites were entangled. This term speaks of confusion. They had no idea what they were doing. They were lost. They were delusional. The wilderness was going to devour them. They had no tactical sense or ability to survive. This was his perspective. And in verse 5, we have recorded a somewhat perplexing scenario. The setting is Egypt. The Pharaoh is present, so this is most likely in the palace. And he has an advisor informing him of the exact whereabouts of the Israelites. And we're given information that is confusing. It says the Pharaoh is informed that the people had fled. But if you remember the story, wasn't it the Pharaoh himself who had instructed the people to leave? He effectively drove them out. How are we to make sense of this? Well, it seems that perhaps the ruler expected the people to be gone for only three days as per the initial request. Moses' first request was to leave for three days to go and offer sacrifices to their gods. And then they would return and recommence their duties. And it seems that this is what Pharaoh expected. I think this is a logical explanation. But now it's made clear to this ruler that this people were not returning voluntarily. The Egyptians thought they had fled. And in light of this realization, perplexing statement number two is made at the end of verse five. It says, Why have we allowed them to go from serving us? Now think about that. You know, why did we allow the labor force to depart? I don't know about you, but I can think of at least ten good reasons as to why this decision was made. It involved frogs, it involved lice, it involved hail, darkness and death. But we see that the wicked had quickly forgotten what God had done. The miraculous had no positive effect on their hearts. And it was decided that pursuing Israel and bringing them back was the action to take. Now, to me, this shows a real foolishness on part of Pharaoh and a very short memory. Has he forgotten what the God of Israel has already done to his beloved Egypt? They were in absolute ruin. His own son had lost his life, and yet he thought it was wise to pursue these people. Now, why why do this? Well, we are told that God hardened his heart. And we will come back to this. But what we must understand is that God only hardened an already hard heart. So that helps us to understand this scenario. But also Egyptian religious belief helps you and I to comprehend as to why the decision to pursue Israel would be justified and make sense to the Egyptian people. And this quote that I've got in your outline about Egyptian religion will help us to grasp this. And I quote, The gods and goddesses that controlled the world were arbitrary and capricious 
quick to change their actions and attitudes, constantly vying with one another for power, not omnipresent, but manifesting themselves at given locations and then leaving those locations unpredictably. The Egyptian gods were considered beings who might not always be present among their people. Accordingly, it was natural for Pharaoh to think that Yahweh, after having expended great effort to demonstrate his power to the Egyptians, might now no longer be directly involved in helping the Israelites, so that he, Pharaoh, could once again assert his power over them unhindered. So this belief that God would abandon a people seemed to be justified in Pharaoh's thinking. For look where the Israelites were located. There is no way that this God that had just annihilated Egypt would lead his people to this dead-end location with no escape if he was still for them. And hence, in his mind, he must now be against them. So let's go and bring them back. We no longer need to fear their God, for he has forsaken them. And hence, the military forces are deployed on mission, bring them back. Verses 6 and 7 inform us of the military team that were employed. We see there were 600 chosen chariots, this meaning the best of the best. Historians believe that the Egyptians were rather advanced at this time in history in military technology. And chariots were a formidable military weapon at this time in history. And along with these 600 chief chariots, it's also possible that more chariots were sent. And at this time, Pharaoh's leading troops were employed. And we must understand that this is one of the most potent armed forces in the whole world. And the fearful battalion of troops went on pursuit of this people. And remember that the God of this people had just annihilated their empire. Many had lost loved ones, probably even children. So the chance of revenge would be driving these soldiers. The chance to inflict grievous pain was rather enticing. They had a wonderful opportunity to settle personal scores as much motivating fuel. And the narrative makes it clear that this army hastily pursued Israel. And quickly they caught up. And that's pretty easy to understand. They had no elderly. They had no children to care for. And quickly the Egyptians had the Israelites trapped. There was no way out. They were vulnerable. Things looked completely hopeless. This mighty military force had advanced from the rear of the Israelites, blocking their only way of escape. And so the helpless multitude would now be at Pharaoh's mercy. Now, it had not taken long for trouble to engulf the Israelites. Their God had saved them miraculously, and yet now they were facing life-threatening difficulties. And the spiritual principle is rather obvious. Just because God has saved you, this does not ensure you a life of ease and comfort. The teaching that promises the Christian wealth, health and prosperity is a lie straight from the pit of hell. For nowhere does the scriptures teach such ludicrousy. In fact, the exact opposite is taught. 
of suffering, trouble and persecution is what the believer ought to expect. And when we think about it, trouble and difficulty ought not to be unexpected. Firstly, because of the teaching of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. It's pretty clear. Godly people will suffer for Christ. No, secondly, because of the examples found in Scripture. The Apostle Paul did not live a life of wealth, health and prosperity, but rather he was beaten and battered. He was arrested and abused. And what about Jesus? If the Christian who is godly is supposed to live a life of ease and comfort, then then Jesus messed up. His life was difficult. He was in poverty and he suffered greater than any other who has ever lived. Thirdly, because Satan is real. My friend, we have an adversary and the devil is rather annoyed that he no longer owns us. We have provoked him. And now he is striving to devour because we belong to Christ. And Pharaoh is really a picture of this. People have been saved, but Pharaoh did not just give up on his pursuits. And this is the same as the devil. We have been saved, praise God, but he will still come at us. And fourthly, because we live in a world that has been affected by sin. This world is cursed. Our bodies are decaying. Everything is affected by sin and hence trouble is real. And in light of these arguments, we must comprehend that difficulties, trials and struggles are to be expected. They are a reality. We must not expect the path of faith to be a smooth one. My friend, we're going to be incredibly disappointed if we anticipate that the Christian journey is going to be a carefree one. Beloved, just because we are in Christ, it doesn't mean difficulties won't come. Being a Christian doesn't give us some sort of magic pass to an easy life. For just as God's people Israel faced this great difficulty before us, despite doing what God had instructed them to do, We too, as God's people, ought to expect challenges. Trouble will come. We will suffer sickness. Christians are not immune to cancer, strokes or heart attacks. Financial difficulties will happen. People will hurt us. People will let us down. Others will treat us poorly. Loved ones will walk away from Christ. Death will occur. Jobs will be lost and so on and so forth. Suffering and difficulties are a reality in the life of the Christian. So in establishing the reality, let's consider, secondly, the reaction to difficulty. As Israel observed the predicament that they found themselves in, as they looked around and considered the circumstances, they capitulated completely. There is a quick and almost embarrassing mood change. They are immediately crippled by fear and they cry out to the Lord. We see this in verse 10. But when the context is considered, this cry seems not so much casting all of their cares onto the Lord, but rather this is more like a spoiled child's temper tantrum. And I say this because of how they respond to Moses. And this is recorded in verses 11 and 12. They were in to Moses. He copped at both barrels. 
And this is the first occurrence of what becomes a very common occurrence. Whenever there is trouble, the people turn on the leader. It's all Moses' fault. And consider the ludicrous nature of the accusations. They accuse Moses of purposefully leading them into the wilderness so they can simply die. And in accusing Moses, they implicate the Lord. That they accuse the Lord of this gross atrocity that he had freed them to simply exterminate them. What a horrific accusation. What, What sort of sick and twisted plan is this? And they make the grand claim that they simply wish they had been left in slavery. At the first sight of trouble, the solution is to go back to Egypt. Go back to the old life of bondage and oppression. Now before we beat up on Israel too much, which is very easy to do, isn't it? We need to firstly understand the situation that they are facing. They are surrounded by the world's most powerful military force. And these soldiers are quite upset with them. This would be quite a, a terrifying reality. Humanly speaking, the situation looks hopeless. So I think we can sympathize with them somewhat. And not condone their response, not condone their accusations. But we need to be at least somewhat understanding. For I'm sure if we are honest with ourselves, there has been times in our lives when we have not responded to difficulties really well. It's very easy to stand back and cast stones when someone else responds poorly, isn't it? And when someone else is suffering and they capitulate and we think to ourselves, I would never, ever respond like that. What are they doing? But often when it's our turn to suffer, we are just like the one we criticize. We respond poorly to difficulty. Our theology goes out the window when suffering comes. We're quick to tell everyone else that God is sovereign, but we throw that out. And, you know, we too can accuse God of unreasonable and unfair accusations when we face troubles. We can be just as bad as Israel. Now, there are two flaws that I see that Israel made that led to their incorrect response. And and these are universal flaws that we are often guilty of when trouble sweeps through our life like the river that has burst its banks. The first flaw is forgetfulness. The forgetfulness of Israel is probably one of the most striking features of this narrative. It is as though they have a terrible case of spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten what the Lord had just done and also what the Lord had promised. Remember, they had just been miraculously brought out of Egypt. Their God had unleashed the ten plagues. They had been freed. The Lord performed staggering miracles, completely destroying Egypt, proving His supremacy over the Egyptian deities. And yet just a short time later... They had already forgotten what God had done. In light of who their God is and what He had already done for them, they had every reason to trust Him and yet they did not. They forgot who their God was and what He had previously done and what He promised He would do. So there's forgetfulness. And the second flaw related to the first was their focus. 
I notice in verse 10 it mentions their eyes. And their eyes are focused on the circumstances. They are fixed on the surrounding Egyptian forces. And they make the mistake of focusing on the circumstances rather than the God of the circumstances. So they took their eyes off God and focused on what was unfolding around them and this led to their wrong reaction. And I wonder how often we react wrongly to the troubles in our life because we make these same mistakes. We forget who our God is, that He is almighty or powerful or knowing, sovereign God. We forget His past faithfulness, forget what He has done for us. There's something that should increase our trust and reliance. And our focus becomes locked in on the situation, locked in on the circumstances that are unfolding, not on our God. Now, how often we take our eyes off Jesus when the storms of life rage and we begin to sink. Now, do you remember the story of Peter? He hopped out of the boats and he walked towards Jesus as the storm was raging. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was okay. But as his eyes began to look around him, he noticed the storm, he noticed the wind, he noticed the waves. He focused on the circumstances rather than Christ and he began to sink. In order to react correctly, we need to remember God's faithfulness and promises and keep our eyes on Jesus during the troubles of life for he is in complete control. And this leads to the third point, the regulation of difficulty. Now what is made very clearly within the narrative is the fact that God was in control of this entire situation. Uh, he was orchestrating these events. He was regulating the difficulty. Now nothing could unfold that God did not permit. It all occurred as per his plan. We have language employed in verse 4 and 8 of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. As before mentioned, we must understand with this concept that God was not hardening a soft heart. It wasn't as though Pharaoh was a good man. He really wanted to do the right thing via Israel, but God would not allow him. That's not the sense. For we read in other places that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He was the culprit behind his rotten attitude and hence the Lord practices the Romans 1 principle, handing them over. And hence he hardens or strengthens an already hard heart. This hardening was of a dual nature. The Lord did not make Pharaoh say no, but rather made him firmer and more determined in his own decisions. Now this hardening was also caused by the wonders and miracles that God performed. That is clear throughout this account. It wasn't that God reached in and bent Pharaoh's mind and will in such a way to make him do as he pleased like a puppet on a string. But rather it was the miraculous power of God demonstrated that strengthened the resolve of Pharaoh, that made him harder. We must also understand that this hardening of heart was not an eternal act. For at least for a time, Pharaoh did repent. So this hardening was not irrevocable. 
And we must also understand that this has nothing to do with the salvation of Pharaoh. This is not about saving repentance, but rather to do with freeing Israel. Our God in His sovereignty has given man the ability of choice. And possessing the capacity of choice means the possibility of hardening one's heart towards God. And this is what Pharaoh has done. And in light of this, the Lord strengthens the resolve of Pharaoh in order to bring his plans to pass. And this is the wonder of God's sovereignty. He uses the free choices of man to accomplish his will and purposes. And in fact, he even uses the evil choices of wicked men to bring his plans to pass. And this is what we have recorded before us. Our God uses this wicked ruler to accomplish his purposes. The Lord is in control of the events recorded before us. He is the regulator. Things can only occur as he permits them. Now the thought that is probably crossing your mind is why would he do this? Why would the Lord decide to bring this particular difficulty into the life of his people? And this is the question that we often wrestle with when difficulty comes, isn't it? Why did God allow this if he could have stopped this? And often we will never know the answer and that's very hard for us. We can rest assured that that our God is in control. He is ruling this world. He has plans and purposes. He is regulating what occurs in this world and in our lives. And although this presents you and I with difficulties, things that are hard to comprehend, why would God do this? Why would he do that? Why didn't he prevent this or prevent that? His sovereignty and control, despite the difficulties that it can present, is a lot better than the alternative. Imagine a God who is not in control. Of a God who doesn't know what's going to happen next. A God who doesn't have the power to bring plans and purposes to pass. A God sitting in heaven thinking, wow, I didn't see that coming in Brendan's life. How am I going to fix that? You know, a God who isn't sovereign is a far more terrifying reality than a God who is sovereign, even though we don't understand all the particulars. You know, the theology of the sovereignty of God is meant to be a great comfort for you and I as a believer. You know, the fact that He reigns, the fact that He rules this world and controls the difficulties in our life, and that He has a plan to accomplish through them, This is designed to be a comfort and a strength to aid and assist us through the challenges of life. And although we may never know what God is seeking to achieve in a particular situation, we can rest assured that his overriding goal is still the same. Look at verse 4. It says, I will be honoured upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. God's glory is always the goal and motivation behind everything that he does. His name being made great is his overriding purpose. God's grand plan in all that he does is to display his glory. 
And God was going to gain great glory at Pharaoh's expense by miraculously saving his people and destroying Pharaoh's famous army. We're still talking about it now. And my friend, God often gains great glory through the difficulties that we face and endure in our lives. And hence we need to trust Him. Remembering that He is in control and that He will work all things together for good for His own glory. And we can have rest and have peace, not because of the absence of danger and difficulties, but because of the God in whom we can trust. In the text before us, God wanted to gain great glory at the expense of Pharaoh. Even though it meant his beloved people would be placed in a situation of difficulty. And this is often how God works. And this is how he worked in the greatest event in human history. That being sending his son for the purpose of dying on the cross to provide salvation. Jesus Christ, the beloved son of God, suffered like no one else. He endured difficulties and dangers like none before him and none after him. He was beaten, broken and battered. He was crucified. He endured the worst of suffering. And yet this event has brought more glory to God than any other by a considerable distance. And it all unfolded just as God had planned. And aren't we thankful for that? You know, God often uses the suffering of our life to accomplish his plans all for His glory, just as He did at the cross. Now, may we remember this, that God often brings great good, and His name is glorified out of the difficulties and troubles in this world and in our lives. And may we trust in Him when we face the difficulties of life. Amen.